Good morning. My name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. And if you're new with us today, whether online or in person, it's a joy to welcome you. Uh, you have um, arrived for the final uh, message in this brief series we're doing on a letter Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to a community of Christians not unlike ourselves in a city not unlike the one which we call home. And we've taken a a, a, a sort of 30,000-foot view of this letter to the Ephesians, and uh, we've not covered every verse. We're going to come back to some key sections in the next couple of future series. We're not going to tackle them right now. Um, and this passage that we have in front of us today in Ephesians chapter 6 is one of those that deserves considerable attention. Um, there was a Puritan pastor named William Gurnall who wrote um, what he called, uh, he wrote uh, a book, he called it um, a little present. That's what he told his congregation. I have a little present for you. And it turned out to be uh, 1,472 pages and 261 chapters. And I'm going to give you the whole t- The Puritans were people who loved long titles. And the name of his book was The Christian in Complete Armor. And so here's the, this is the title of the book, The Christian in Complete Armor, a treatise on the saints' war against the devil, wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people in his policies, people, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints. A magazine is opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapons together with the happy issue of the whole war. That's just the title of the book. So it's one that can occupy, this text is one that can occupy us for a time. It is an important part of the whole message that Paul has unpacked for these early believers. He's grounded them in the gospel, that they are in Christ, that they are justified, that this is an unmovable, unshakable reality that they are saved, not by anything they have done, but by everything that Christ has accomplished for them and God has counted to them as his people. And then they've been taught to live a whole new life, to, here's the word that Paul used, to walk after Jesus Christ, to put on Christ and to walk worthy of that calling, walking, he said, in love, walking in the light, walking in wisdom. And now he turns to this Final word, you're not only seated with Christ in heavenly places and walking in his ways, there's a word that he uses to stand. Stand, therefore, you'll see in this text, as a way of describing what it means to be a Christian who is dealing with the fact that we face tremendous conflict. Uh, That little collection of words, sit and walk and stand, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, formed the title of a book that was written by a great Chinese Christian pioneer named Watchman Nee. And I mentioned his book a few weeks ago, and a a friend of the church was here this morning, and he said he was so inspired by that, he went and bought 90 copies to give away to you. And they're in the foyer out Friday, and he has only one condition if you take one of these with you. It's a tiny little book. Uh, I read it as a teenager. It was a life changer, absolute game changer for me. Pick up a copy. His only condition was, you got to read it. You got to read it. Don't just take it, you know, oh, that'd be great for my coffee cup right there. No, you got to take it, read it. I'll add to that. Make sure that you give it to someone as well. Well, let's look at this text that one Christian author 
took so long on, and we only have a few minutes to deal with, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to Boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. So we've called this series Beyond Imagination. That's a phrase taken from chapter 3, where Paul says that God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ever ask or imagine. It is beyond the imagination of some people, deeply influenced by a cynical secularism, that anything like what Paul describes in this text, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, um, or what he called in chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air that is working in the sons of disobedience, that these kinds of dark entities are in any way real. Informed by a more materialist view of reality that the only thing that's real is what you can see and touch and taste, that that's the extent of reality, that sophisticated, intelligent people in the early 21st century know that talking about angels and demons and princes and powers and devils and so on, that's the kind of stuff of legend. You might as well talk about dragons. And it's not real. It belongs to the stuff of fairy tales and witches passing out poison apples. But the scriptures, in fact, and historically the church, has always acknowledged the reality of these forces. And when we acknowledge them, we not only put ourselves in alignment with the Scripture, but with all of our fathers fathers and mothers in the faith who have gone before us. As you know, I grew up Lutheran, and so that meant I not only said the Apostles' Creed uh, every Sunday, but often the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed was a lot longer. I was always a little worried when we got to the Nicene Creed because that meant it was going to be one of those longer Sundays, and I was going to miss the kickoff. Oh, it's a Nicene Creed Sunday. 
But the Nicene Creed is a beautiful creed and so important. It begins this way, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and... Oh, some of you gave yourselves away right there. You grew up in church with me. Invisible and invisible. That there is an invisible realm that is created by God and for his glory, but which just like this visible realm we live in has been subject to rebellion and high treason and darkness and wickedness and what Paul calls here evil. Christians have fought with these powers. They've wrestled with them, and the wrestling match is real. Luther wrote about it, wrote a great hymn about it. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. He must win the battle. When Luther wrote those words, reflecting on the psalm, Psalm 46 in particular, he's echoing what Paul is saying here. Notice that he doesn't say to us, in the face of evil, be strong, be strong. That's not what he says. He says, be strong, how? In the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, evil is real and the fight is real. Though people may imagine that it's not. I think a lot of people think this kind of thing is a little bit like championship wrestling. I was in an organization when I was in high school called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA. My mom, when I was in high school, said FCA stood for Future Christians of America because she said, the boys in your club are not Christians yet, and that's for sure. <laughs> we had a fundraiser one year when I was a freshman in high school, fundraiser, and we held a wrestling event with professional wrestlers. People flocked to the gym. They paid their money. It was one of the best fundraisers we ever had. And these guys were in the ring hurling them their bodies and abuse at each other, bloodying one another with fake blood, it turned out, with all kinds of, you know, forearm shivers and hitting each other over the head with chairs. My job as a lowly freshman was to carry towels to them in the locker room. It was quite a revelation. Because after these bouts, I would go into the locker room to bring them their towels, and they were in there laughing with one another, showing each other pictures of their children and grandchildren, and talking to each other about the next performance. It wasn't a fight. It was a dance. It wasn't a war. It was choreography. But this battle... No, 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 this battle, this wrestling match, Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This wrestling match is real. Evil is real. 
20th century and 21st century Westerners have had a hard time coming to terms with the notion of evil. Uh, in his remarkable book, The Death of Satan, Andrew Del Banco notes that in the face of technological advance, many people in the 20th century began to dismiss the possibility of evil. And we're all thankful for technological advance. I mean, aren't we glad there's air conditioning? <laughs> I got at least seven amens on air conditioning. <laughs> but technological advance does not mean moral advance. And Del Banco in his book notes that in the face of the most violent century in human history, in which more people were slaughtered, the century of Holocaust and genocide, when we look at the events that take place every single day we turn on the news of mass shootings, we have to come to grips with this issue of evil. He writes at the start of the book, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Never before have images of horror been so widely disseminated and so appalling. The repertoire of evil has never been richer. You, yet never have our responses been so weak. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. We shudder, we wince, and we change the channel. What have we done with it? What have we done with evil? We've domesticated it. And we've said that all evil basically is either the absence of good, it's a kind of just negation, or it's perpetrated only because people have been traumatized in some way. Something bad has happened to them to make them bad. Well, bad things have happened to people, and people are traumatized by sins against them. And out of that woundedness and brokenness, they do strike out. But the scriptures point out that there's something darker that is at work running through the human race, the spirit animating the sons of disobedience from which people are to be liberated. Evil is intrinsic to humanity. Do you remember that book by Thomas Harris and then the movie, The Silence of the Lambs. Some of you are going, oh. With Hannibal Lecter played by the great Anthony Hopkins. The detective who is investigating a series of kidnappings and murders of young women, Officer Starling is trying to get at the roots of what would be at work in a personality who would do those kinds of horrible deeds. And she goes to interview Hannibal Lecter in prison to try to get at the root of what's been the source of his horrible, evil behavior. And she asks the person who's taking him towards his cell, what happened to him? But she made the mistake of asking that question where he could hear her. And his answer is very telling. Before anybody can respond to her question, what happened to him to make him this way, 
He pipes up. And by the way, it's hard to hear these words without hearing Anthony Hopkins say them, but there you are. Listen to what he says. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? You see, evil is a force that is at work. And you and I come face to face with it as Christians on a daily basis. The people at Ephesus did. The occult was very much a part of their entire culture and civilization. It says, in fact, that the preaching of the gospel by the apostle Paul in that city saw so many people respond that when they brought all of their occult paraphernalia, their books, and all that went along with it, they had a great bonfire. It was worth, Acts 19 tells us, 50,000 pieces of silver. If those were denarii, one day's wages, that's a bonfire of five and a half million dollars worth of materials. That's a serious occult presence. And of course, Ephesus was known as the home of one of the wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Diana of the Ephesians, Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians, this fertility goddess, the goddess of the hunt. And we've talked all about the hedonistic way in which worship took place there at that terrible temple and what that engaged people in. And there was darkness. And so these Christians were not going down the road to work every day, passing churches. They weren't seeing symbols of light. They lived in the shadow of the princes and the powers. There was no doubt in their minds that these things were real. Can we doubt them, truly? DeMonco was writing his book in 1995. Evil was not something that was part of everybody's vocabulary. If you talked about evil, people thought you were a little bit out of touch with reality. It's hard for me to believe, but it'll be in about six weeks, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It, it's hard for me to believe it's been 20 years. It feels like last Tuesday to me. But it was very interesting that after 9-11, in the immediate aftermath of those terrible attacks, evil was something people began to talk about again. Evil suddenly had a face. Evil seeking to destroy humanity, seeking to destroy the good and the beautiful. Well, that was something that was real. C.S. Lewis wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The enemy is just as happy for you to disbelieve in his existence and pretend that he isn't there 
as he would be for you to become a partner in a satanic coven, whichever way you want to go. Either will leave you blind. And Satan is the one who does blind. He blinds people to the beauty of who Jesus is. And this is why you and I are called to fight. We are called to fight against an enemy who Jesus said is a liar. The scriptures say is a deceiver. He's called a tempter. He's called a murderer. He's called an accuser. These are words which are used to describe this being the scriptures call Satan. And you and I are in conflict with him. Now this has largely been misunderstood. Many Christians have become obsessed with these spiritual forces, these principalities and powers, and they've suggested that really you if you look at some literature on spiritual warfare, you have to try to discern the main power that's over a certain area and then begin to speak to it and say, I bind you. Can I just tell you right at the outset that getting into a conversation with a principality in power is not a good idea. It's not a good idea to hold a conversation with the devil. That's what Eve did. It didn't end well. When Jesus saw demonic activity, he cast it out and told it to be quiet. Didn't carry on lengthy conversations with it. And Paul, when he got to Ephesus, didn't say, we need to have a spiritual warfare committee meet and try to figure out what is the spiritual stronghold in Ephesus and bind it. No, what he did to conquer the darkness is what he ends his text with. Pray in the spirit and pray that I preach the gospel well. That's how darkness is overcome, through prayer and through preaching of the gospel. That's vital for people to understand because warfare language has also been taken up by Christians in inappropriate ways at another end of the extreme. And that is that people think that our battle is with people rather than for people. We are not in a fight with people. We are in a fight for people. People blinded by the darkness to the beauty of Jesus. People caught in the prisons of resentment and sin. These people are people we want to see liberated. Even if someone says to you, I am your enemy, the response of the Christian is to love our enemy and to understand our place in the conflict. Churches, communities of believers are to be unified in our approach in these matters, praying together, preaching together, sharing in ministry together, creating gospel ecosystems in whole metropolitan areas, great webs of grace that capture people in the love and the mercy of God that sees them healed and delivered from the powers of darkness. It's a real battle, but it is not with people, it is for people. If you think that the enemy is other people, the people who aren't like you, the people who don't think like you, don't vote like you, don't talk like you. If you see them as the enemy, you're missing Paul's point here. Our battle, he says, is not, everybody say not, not. In Greek that means not. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people. It's with dark powers that control people and control civilizations. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with the darkness for people. You're not fighting with your children, you're fighting for them. 
you got to fight for them. But to do that means you need to understand your place in the conflict, and that means we need to understand the origin of the conflict. The origin of the conflict is this. It's with God. I'm going to go very quickly on this, so run the race with me. The origin of the conflict is in Genesis chapter 3, where the fall has taken place, and God comes to the serpent, and he says, the seed of the woman, this woman whom you've deceived, there's a seed coming through the woman. You're going to bruise him on the heel. You're going to cause him pain, but as you cause him pain, he is going to crush your head. And ever since that moment, that dark force began watching for every baby that was being born as the potential head crusher that was coming for him. And he went after her firstborn, Cain. He was a murderer. He turned Cain into a murderer who slew his brother. But the promise was not negated because another son was born named Seth. And down through that line, the promise began to unfold. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity, conflict, between you and your seed and the woman and her seed. Conflict. God declared war. God looked at the cosmos. Now, as Luther wrote, with devils filled, and he looked at us trapped by sin, and God did not say, I will leave it this way. I am declaring war. I am going to invade this territory and liberate it. I'm going to liberate people. I'm going to liberate the planet. I'm going to liberate the cosmos. I'm declaring war on the powers of darkness. We're in a conflict because God started a war. You know, if God starts a war, how do you think it's going to end? Hmm? Well, we'll get there. There's a warrior in this conflict. And the warrior is God himself. God himself is a warrior. You see this language that Paul uses here. I wish I had time to get into it. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, feet shod with the, the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking up the sword of the spirit, and so on. People say, well, it's Paul. He's in chains. He's looking at a Roman guard, and he's kind of describing him. No, he's taking every single bit of that from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, it talks about God looking out over humanity and saying, I looked for someone who would stand in the gap. I looked for someone who would be a warrior, and I couldn't find anybody. So I put on the helmet of salvation, and I took up the sword, and I put on the belt, and I put on the boots, and I am going to fight the war. That's why Paul says, put on the armor of who? God. It's God's armor. God is the warrior. This is the one who is fighting for you. Here's what you have to understand about the battle that we face. You have been liberated. You are a person that God has come and fought for. God came and fought for you to liberate you. He came, put on the armor himself and said, I will come and fight against the powers of darkness to bring you out of the prison into a place of liberty. My brother, who is a warrior, Literally, Navy Special Forces. Some of you will meet him in a few weeks' time when he comes down for the men's retreat. He's got lots of stories. He's walking through the Belgian countryside one day with a friend. They're just on a, a day off, and this woman comes out, older lady, elderly lady, comes out saying, Liberté, Liberté, Liberté. Couldn't speak any English, but she could say, Liberty. 
because she recognized them as soldiers. And while they weren't the ones who liberated her country from Nazi occupation, they were to her simply the extension of the men who decades before had done that. She said, come, 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 come sit down, come sit down. And she fed them and fed them and fed them because she was so thankful to be free. So thankful to be free. Most of the Christians I know don't understand how free they are in Jesus Christ from the dark forces they've been liberated from because God is a warrior who put on the armor and said, I will fight for you. He fought for you. Thank God you're free. There should be something in our hearts every worship service that goes, liberty, liberty, liberty. God, that sounded like a TV commercial. Jeez. I'm not selling insurance. The origin of the conflict. God started this war. He's the warrior in the conflict. He's the one who puts on the armor. He's the one who goes to it. What's the nature of this conflict that we're in? Well, first of all, it's personal. It's a personal conflict. Everybody's in this. Every Israeli citizen is part of the army. There are no Christians who are not involved in this war. You cannot check out of this war. People keep wanting to turn the church into some carnival cruise liner. This is a, this is a battleship. This is, a, this is an aircraft carrier with destroyers all around it. We're on a mission. You're not sitting in deck chairs. You're here being kitted out for the conflict. My goodness. For, I, know, I know the port for the cruise is just down the road, but that's not what this is. No. You're in this, and it's personal. I love the, I love the movie The Patriot. With Mel Gibson, and I know some of you are going, oh, should I watch it? Yes, you should watch it. Story of Benjamin Martin, gentleman farmer there in South Carolina. He doesn't want anything to do. He fought in the French and Indian War. He, does, he knows war is ugly. He doesn't want any part of it. He's a widower. He's got seven children. The British are there. I love the British. You know me. I love the British, but I still like this movie. Okay? And it's the American Revolution, you know, that's going on. And he doesn't want to be part of it. He doesn't want to do this. But then the war comes to him. And then Mel Gibson starts doing Mel Gibson stuff, you know, throwing axes and shooting stuff. But he turns to his kids, many of whom are little kids, and he says, tosses them guns. Here, shoot this. Everybody, even the kids are in it. You say even the kids are in this war? Yes, Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know that verse. Okay, but the next verse says, God has established praise through the mouths of infants and little children to silence the foe and the avenger. Since the garden, Satan hates children. He hates their praises. He hates everything about them. God cherishes children. Jesus says, bring the children to me. I'm gonna, and that's why we baptize babies, by the way. Don't get me started on that, okay? Because children are citizens of the covenant. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said children are holy. Children are holy. You say, pastor, not mine. Mine's a viper in a diaper. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. They're holy kids. They're holy kids. They're set apart for God. And when they praise and worship God, heaven rejoices and hell trembles. I can't wait to see them up here singing in a couple of, they don't even have to be good, they just have to be cute. That's it. And when they sing and worship God, God rejoices in it. My friends, it's personal. Here's the second thing, it's spiritual, it's spiritual, it's spiritual. You cannot win a spiritual fight with a political solution. It is a spiritual battle that is won on our knees that is won by the preaching of the gospel. 
You are not fighting with people, you are fighting for people. Your enemies that you perceive are to be loved by you. You find ways to love them well and serve them and heap on their heads these burning coals of grace and it's perpetual. I <laughs> say, Pastor, how long is this war gonna go on? Till you die. Till you die. I had a guy in my office. This is, gosh, now this is 35 years ago. It's back in my office in Kentucky. And he said, I want you, he was a young Christian. He said, I want you to pray with me that I won't be tempted by the devil anymore. I said, oh, man, that's really good. I'm glad you hate your sin. That's so great. You really want me to pray that you won't be tempted anymore? Yeah. I said, okay, let's take hands. So we take hands. I said, Lord, I thank you for my brother. I thank you he hates his sin. He doesn't want to be tempted anymore. I pray that you would take his life and kill him today and take him to heaven. He was like, what, what, what are you praying, what? I said, dude, the only way your temptations are ever gonna end are the day you die. And he started, he started laughing. I said, you are in a perpetual conflict for the rest of your life. And it is the fight of your life. And it's not just for your soul, but the souls of your children and your wife and your, and, 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 and this is what we're in. But let me tell you about the outcome. Very briefly, the outcome, what's the outcome? Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How does God bring about peace? He just crushes Satan under your feet. How does he do that? Well, it happened, you see, that that promise Going back to the opening volley of the war, the serpent's head will be crushed, though his heel will be bruised. Here's what happened. The enemy tried to kill him when he was born. He sent Herod. Herod tried to kill him. He escaped. He tried to kill him by saying, throw yourself off the top of the temple. The angels will catch you. Didn't work. But then finally... He got him. He got him. He filled the heart of a disciple named Judas Iscariot. It says Satan filled his heart, and he betrayed him. And Peter denied him, and they handed him over to be crucified. And they hung him there. They put nails in his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns in his brow, and they put a spear at his side, and he hung there. And if you'd have stood there at the foot of that cross, you'd have never looked at that scene of a battered, broken, bruised man with a swollen tongue protruding from shattered lips and every screaming breath that he took crying out for your forgiveness, you'd have never looked at that scene and said, that looks like a win. But it was. That's exactly what it was. Because God has this secret weapon, what C.S. Lewis called the deeper magic that shatters death, that shatters sin, that shatters the powers of darkness. And when he hung there between heaven and earth, here's what Colossians chapter 2 says. Colossians chapter 2 says that our sins were nailed to the cross. Now, when a person's crucified, all the charges against them were nailed up there. It's called the titleist. And above their heads was nailed 
the charges. You remember what Jesus' title has said, hanging on the cross, King of the Jews. That's what you'd have seen. But secretly, you see, the invisible realm, in the invisible realm, what was written up there was not King of the Jews. It was adultery, deception, idolatry, violence, hatred, mine, yours. Our sins were written. They were nailed to the cross. He died, not because of the charges against him, but because of the charges against me. And when he died, all the charges against me died with him. But there was something else going on. Colossians 2 goes on to say, he not only had the charges against us nailed to the cross, it says behind the scenes, he was, listen to this, disarming principalities and powers. And the shame of the cross, the shame of the cross, this naked man hanging there, nailed there, unable to move. That naked, that guy, that guy, what was he doing? He was, he was disarming principalities and powers. He was shattering the forces of darkness. It says God triumphed over the darkness through the cross. What was he doing? Behind the scenes, he put a chain around the prince of the power of the air. He drug him across the stage of the cosmos. He went into hell and said, I'll have the keys. And he turned the door and everyone who had been in the realm of death and hell came out. And Jesus was seen to be Lord. And all of hell that had thought they had him suddenly realized that in his cross, they had been completely destroyed. That's what happened at the cross. That's the outcome of this battle. And that's why Paul doesn't say, take up the full armor of God and fight like a crazy person. No, he says, take up the whole armor of God and do what? Stand. Stand there. Just stand there. Take your stand. Take your stand for your family. Take your stand for your city. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. This entire region belongs to Jesus. Every street in this town belongs to Jesus. Every neighborhood belongs to Jesus. Every, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Take your stand. One of my favorite guys in the whole Bible, I'll close with this, was Shammah. Shammah. One of David's SEAL team members his mighty men. And it says he was attacked by this marauding band of Philistines, and he was all alone, and there was a lentil patch there. I would never fight you for a lentil patch. I'm a gardener, but lentils, ugh. I mean, I don't, there's, I don't like them that much. I don't, there's stuff I don't like. I don't like Brussels sprouts, little baby demon cabbages. I don't like those things. Lentils, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you for lentils. You want the lentils? Have the lentils. Not Shama. Why? Because he loved lentils? No. Because the patch belonged to the king. They were the king's lentils. And so he took his stand in the lentil patch. And the power of God came on him. And every single force was defeated. Why do you take your stand for your family? Why do you take your stand for your city? Why do you take a stand for the church? It's not against people. We're not fighting with people. We're fighting what? For people. To liberate them, you take your stand. Why? Because it's the king's. This city belongs to King Jesus. This church belongs to King Jesus. This whole area belongs to King Jesus. Every dark force that's here invading a person or invading an institution or controlling a situation, that's a trespasser. That's a, 
That's a force that has to go. You dark forces have to go in Jesus' name. And I'm telling you this morning that every ounce of evil in hell, every ounce of evil in hell, if it all came against you, if all of it were gathered up, it came against you, you would win because it's not your strength and it's not your armor. It's the armor of God. That's why Luther wrote, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word Above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. My friends, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, you have put on the armor. You came to fight for us. You came to free us. And we thank you that you will clothe us now with the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking up the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, strapping on the breastplate of righteousness, lifting up the shield of faith, putting on the, the belt of truth. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit of God enabling us, helping us. We take our stand today for our families. We take our stand for our city. We take our stand for the church. Lord, we're just going to stand here because you are the one who fights and you are the one who wins. Your cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull, is where you crushed the head of the enemy. And we thank you that when the cross dropped in the ground, the serpent's head was smashed to smithereens. All glory, honor, and praise to King Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the smasher of serpents, the victor over all darkness. Amen, amen. and amen.